but today we are in John chapter 15, 1 through 10. Hey, let me, let me read the passage for us, ask you to follow along with me, and then, uh, <clears throat> then we'll begin to walk through. Jesus speaks and he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, as we work through the Gospel of John, if you were to go home this afternoon and to read through it, and what you were looking for was uh, just a really clear presentation of all of these I am statements that Jesus unfolds. And you were to look for not, not just statements of identity, but you were to look to attach them to these metaphors that Jesus uses, you'd find that this is the last one of these. This is the last time Jesus has one of these kind of seven programmatic metaphorical I am statements. And so I just want to go through that, refresh uh, these in your mind, because I think they begin to unpack and show us a full picture of who Jesus is. And then in getting this full picture of who Jesus is, we begin to understand the role we play, and in fact, how we are to integrate ourselves into who Jesus is. And so the first one Jesus uses, uh, you can find back in chapter 6 and verse 35, he says, I'm the bread of life. And so he invites people to come in to, uh, to feast, as it were, on him. He says, I'm the light of the world. And so he says, effectively, I'm portraying, I'm showing you, God, I'm uh, this light that has come into the darkness. I am the door of the sheep. And so we recognize that there is a sense in which uh, Jesus points to his exclusivity in revealing the Father. Jesus is the door to the sheep. He's the gate by which the sheep pass through. He says, I am the good shepherd. And it's a stunning statement. He says, I'm the good shepherd and I become it because I lay down my life for the sheep. And so he's pointing at his crucifixion. He says, I'm the good shepherd and I call my sheep by name and they come to me because they know me. So he points at the intimacy of union that we're able to have with Jesus, that he would call out and he would know you by name. And lovingly, he would beckon you come. Lovingly, he would beckon you come and to know him and to experience the goodness of the one true shepherd. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Pointing at the most exclusive of all statements that he offers us there in John 14, 6. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In essence, he says, look, if you want to know God, if you want to experience God, you can do it, you can, you can reach it in no other way, through no other medium, except by the agency the role of the son. And Jesus accomplished this, accomplishes this. He does this by laying down his life, by surrendering his life, by dying upon a cross and being raised again on the third day and then beckoning us to come, 
to experience the goodness of this shepherd who would lay down his life on behalf of the sheep. And then within this passage, he tells us that he is the true vine. So let's begin to unpack all the various ways that we might understand that. The identity that Jesus gives us in this true vine. Would you say, would you agree that uh, the better you know someone, the more readily you're able to be friends with someone? So there are those of you in this room who think, man, I know Matt pretty well. He's been my pastor for six years, and so I know a lot about him, a lot of which uh, you'd think he'd be really embarrassed to have me know, and, and, and you're right, I am. Um, but if you're to have me over to your house and, and you're to invite my kids over, put the breakable stuff up, but you're to have us over and you're to say, oh, I'm going to make Matt's favorite dessert. And, and, and you didn't know anything about me. And so you set out and you're like, oh, I, I, it's, it's going to be so incredibly delicious. He's going to love it. And, and when I sat down at the table, you brought it forward. And what it ended up being was this, this, this delightful in your mind uh, dessert that is banana pudding. You would see me crestfallen. Because I'm really forced with this kind of internal conflict. How rude can I be to you in this moment? And, and how, how is my gag reflex? And like, how are all these things working? So this is kind of what you've done. You said, oh, I just love him. And I just, oh, I just think he's so great. I want to make something he's just going to delight in. So you've taken bananas, which are already questionable, right? <laughs> and you've taken the bananas and you've peeled them so carefully and lovingly. And you've mushed them to nothing. It looks like you chewed them up and spit them back in the bowl. And so you've tried to mask this with Cool Whip. Well done. You failed. There's still bananas in there. And then somewhere in this, you decided that vanilla wafers also needed to be guilty. And so you've collected them, thereby ruining the only thing in this whole thing that I would have enjoyed. <laughs> if you have me over to your house, I'd be really happy with some brownies, perhaps, or maybe some chocolate chip cookies. Or if you must have banana pudding, I'll take it, minus the banana pudding with a side of vanilla wafers. And so this dessert would reveal that you don't really know me, or you do, and you're a, you're a sadist, and you just want to see me uh, work my gag reflex. Uh, when Valerie knew that I was the one that she was going to marry, we were uh, having a meal with her grandmother, who is this kind of really amazing, super short, impossibly short woman, and was famous for her banana pudding. And so she said, sweetheart, I made you a special banana pudding. I thought... Oh, joy. <laughs> and when somebody makes you a special banana pudding, you don't get you know, just a tiny portion. You get like a massive platter's portion of banana pudding. And so she puts it on there. I'm thinking, I can eat that, I think. And then she's like, and of course, you're going to want some Cool Whip. And she, she puts an equal amount of Cool Whip on top. And I'm thinking, I'm going to die, like cold sweat time. But I mustered all the way through it. And Valerie's looking at me thinking, he, he hates banana pudding, but somehow he's eating this. And she was never tempted to believe that my taste buds have changed. But throughout that meal, she was increasingly convinced of my deep love for her and by extension, her grandmother's sadistic bearings in cooking banana pudding. <laughs> and what Jesus shows us in this, if we want to be in love with Jesus, if we want to be in this love relationship with Jesus, we can't pick any Jesus we want. We have to pick the Jesus as portrayed in the scriptures. So he comes to us and he says, I am the true vine. Now, if you were to read through the Old Testament repeatedly, you would see that Israel is spoken of as the vine. And, and, and most of these references aren't very uh, encouraging. They're not very promising. They aren't just wonderfully beautiful depictions of this. 
In Jeremiah 2 and 21, it says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. And so we see God's intention for Israel was that they be pure, that they be beautiful, that that when people see God's relationship with Israel, they'd say, I want to be involved with this. I want to be into this. I want to be a follower of God, uh, the likes of which you are. But then he goes on, he says, How then have you turned degenerate? And become a wild vine. So we recognize that Jesus is this, this, this idea that he has replaced, that he has become all that Israel was intended to be. This beautiful beacon of light whereby people would see the mediated relationship of God uh, through Israel's interaction with God. And they would see that and want that. Jesus moves in and he does perfectly what they failed miserably to accomplish. He says, I am the true vine. And recognize in this, he goes on, he says, and the Father is the vine dresser. So Jesus, this true vine, is is out there, and he's describing himself in this way. And he says, the Father is this one, and he he tenderly cares for me. He provides for me. And look, look at how he continues on in this metaphor. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then and he says, every branch that, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So if we're to think just in terms of the disciples in this group of 12 that Jesus has, within this group, we see both of these things revealed. Within this group, we see Judas, and you would say that Judas was one that if you were to look at the three years Jesus spent palling around and traveling around Galilee, then you were to say, he is in him. He is a part of the group. He is one of the 12. We recognize him because of his close association with Jesus. But when it came to it, he betrayed Jesus, revealing himself that he never really was a follower of Jesus. He liked some of his teaching. He liked some of of what it meant to spend time with him. But he never really truly identified and surrendered himself to Jesus. And we turn to the idea in the picture of pruning, and, and, and Peter pops to mind. Peter, who repeatedly said the wrong thing at the wrong time, and then when push came to shove, we recognized that Peter betrayed Jesus in, in this, this act and this movement of, of preserving his life and preserving and continuing on instead of being put to death. And so we see one is taken away and one is pruned. So what does it look like in our life? James has this wonderful picture of it in James chapter 1 in verses 2 through 4. And it's just this, this devastating thing when we begin to look at it and think about it. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind, because you know that the testing of your faith, the pruning in your life, proving the legitimacy of your faith, it produces steadfastness. It makes you solid in your relationship to Jesus and your dependency of him. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The author of Hebrews describes it as chastisement or the rebuke of the Lord. And he says that if you are a true son, if you are a true follower of God, then he will move and he will address those things in your life that are not honoring to him. In the absence of this, if you're engaged in sin, the absence of this, the absence of the conviction of the Holy Spirit is more likely an indication that you are never a true son or true daughter in the first place, the Psalms this puts it this way in Psalm 119, in verse 67. Listen to this. This is where many of us find ourselves. It says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. And did everything I wanted to do. I followed my own way. I, I, I had my own conception of who you are. And I sought to fulfill that in the, in the role and realm of my life. 
Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And he continues, he says, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. This morning, as you reflect on God, would, you, would your testimony towards him be that you are good and you do good? I think part of our response to that depends upon how we see pruning, how you see God's active investment in your life, systematically going through and removing those areas of your life that are possibly dishonoring to him. It's difficult. It can be a miserable experience to be pruned, to be actively investigated of sorts by God. But recognize that the pruning is directly in proportion to God's desire that we bear more fruit. We bear more fruit. God isn't this, this wild gardener who's out just kind of doing guesswork. In front of our house, we had two pecan trees, and I had wonderful visions of just this kind of this bumper crop of pecans every year, and that somebody would be making pecan pies and pecan sandies and, and pecan jellies and jams and, and whatever, and I would be eating them to like a 400-pound gross weight. And so, but if you go to look at these pecan trees in front of my house, you would recognize that, that somebody has been a haphazard vine dresser. Somebody has gone out there and pruned these things to an unrecognizable form, and I would say it's my children who aren't here today. <laughs> you see, we've got one pecan tree in our front yard that's really a stick with no leaves, and, and every year we think maybe we'll get a leaf, maybe we'll get a leaf. And you see, because it's the only pecan tree in front of our house that's ever given us a pecan. Notice I'm not saying pecans. Pecan. We've gotten one. It was so tasty. I didn't floss my teeth for two weeks just so I could keep tasting it. And the other one has, has wonderful leaves on it, but it stands about this tall because the top got broken out of it. And some of us have this sense of understanding that this is how God would be in my life if I were to bear all and submit to him that he would cut things out of my life, that he would remove things that I'm not prepared to relinquish to release. You have this thought and this understanding that, look, I, I've got this well-ordered life. I, I have my extracurriculars over here. I have my work life over here. I have my romantic or my personal life over here. And, and I really don't want God messing with it. You see, because I've put him over here on kind of the island of religiosity. And the island of religiosity is surrounded by this buffer of sea and ocean that, that I don't really want him to traverse. I don't want him to go over there because, you see, if he comes over here and he comes into the realm of relationship and he recognizes that I have relationships that are dishonoring him, he might just, might just get bored and he might begin to meddle and he might tell me that so-and-so shouldn't be in my life. And I don't really want that. And, and if he were to come uh, over in here, and if he were to be involved in, in, in my work life, and he were to tell me, oh, you're a workaholic, you have no time to honor me because you spent all of your time working. You have no energy left over. Well, that would be really frustrating because, see, because I have all these extracurriculars, and I can't do any of these things over here if I don't do this over here. A lot of us, we have no desire for God to come in and prune our lives so that we could be more fruitful because we're terrified that he would damage all the various spheres we've set up. All the various ways that we want to keep our life neat and well-ordered. That Jesus doesn't exist. That island you've created doesn't exist. It's a figment of your imagination. He dwells here. He owns all. And what we'll find in this passage is that the more involved he is with us in our lives, the more we abide with him. Now look at what he says in verse 3. 
lest you think you have to order your life for him to come in. He speaks to those listening. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Now, back in chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus spoke, and a group of Jews came up, and they wanted to follow Jesus. And he had this really clear teaching about how they needed to respond to his word. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And so Jesus' word is the sum total of his teaching, the way that he lived his life. And so we recognize that, that the word he has spoken, the life he has lived, and the pattern of existence he gives us allows us to be clean and unsullied by this world. We are sanctified and made clean by repeatedly submitting ourselves to his word, right? And so it's not just this, this phenomenon that takes place on a Sunday morning where you come in, you feel bad about yourself, you leave and you think, I feel bad about myself, I'm going to go on and I feel better about myself when I get out there. No, it's the repeatedly submitting ourselves and subjecting ourselves, submitting ourselves underneath his word. And in so doing, it has this cleansing effect of us in our lives and all these various realms and, and things that we've sought to relegate and keep control uh, for me, myself, and I. And so Jesus has made us clean. If you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, he has spoken a word of healing over you, and that word is faith in him and in him alone. You see, we're not made clean by obedience to these things. We are made clean so that we might be obedient to him. So he calls us. He's given this metaphor, and he says, I am the vine, the Father is the vine dresser, and these are the things the Father does. And look what he says here in verse 4. He says, abide in me, and I in you. Abide in me, and I in you. So Jesus gives us, in some sense, it could be this idea of comparison. We're to abide in Jesus as he abides in us. Titus has this wonderful thing, and he says that even though we remain or can be faithless, he remains faithful. And so when we feel like we are far from God and we're moving away from God, we recognize that he remains faithful to us. Why? Because our abiding to him is to be modeled upon how he abides with us. And it is enduring and it is long-lasting and it knows no end. And it is not sullied, it is not diminished, it is not, it is not adversely affected, it's not damaged by my faithlessness. It's not. Why? Because it's also not initiated by my faithfulness. It's not initiated by my moving towards God, being better or being less dead or less in the dark. God initiates this move towards us, and he says, abide in me and I in you, and this is what it is to be a Christian, one who constantly persists abiding in God. In chapter 14, in verse 16, we, we begin to get an idea of kind of how this thing takes place because this, we look at this and on the, on the surface of it, it looks like tremendous work and, and the work of the source that which we are unable, woefully unable to accomplish on our own, right? If, if the statement in the verse said, look, I want you to uh, uh, abide in me and if you accomplish this, that's great and I'm gonna persist and I'm gonna continue to hang out and I'm going to abide in you. If it's kind of this contingent relationship that if we abide in him, he'll choose to reciprocate and abide in us, but we don't see that at all. Back in verse 16, uh, Jesus is describing the fact that he's going to leave, that he's going to uh, no longer be there with the disciples, and he says this. He says, I will ask in the Father, and he will give you another helper. 
So primarily, when Jesus is there with the disciples, he is their helper. He reveals God. But he says, when I leave, when I go away, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he's going to be the one to help you. And look how long he's going to be there. He's going to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. So he says, look, right now, where I am, I dwell with you. When I leave, the Holy Spirit, he's going to come, and he's going to take up residence with inside you. And this is how we abide. Our abiding is directly tied to God's initiation and God's movement of his spirit to cause us, to allow us to move and abide in him. We can't do it on our own. Many of us have this mistaken notion that if we are to abide with Jesus, that it takes this overwhelming tour de force in our lives. And so this is, this is necessarily when we see sin rise up in our lives, when we begin to make unwise choices, when we begin to see ourselves struggling in our faith, we have this thought that comes into our minds that communicates to us, you are far away from him, you are failing to abide. And where that thought begins is back in this understanding that our initiation was begun by us. But when we understand and when we find the freedom that it is God who is always moving towards us, it was God showing himself in the person of Jesus, flinging open the gate to the sheep, saying, come on in, God in the person of Jesus, surrendering his life and dying for us, and they're taking on the name of the good shepherd, and God abiding and moving in us, calling us to remain and persist in full dependence upon him. And in that and in that alone, are we ever able to abide? It's his goodness towards us that allows us to abide. So he talks to us about a life spent in abiding, a life spent in glorification of the Father and submission and obedience and following the example of the Son. So look what he says. He says, abide in me and I in you. And then he brings this metaphor back. He says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And so we have the picture of this vine, and he says, look, if we were to take the various tendrils, these branches that come off the vine, and we were to sever, we were to cut them off, and just expect them to produce wonderful grapes, we would spend our life waiting in vain. They're never going to do this. They have no capability to do this on their own. They only produce fruit in so much as they are found in the vine. And so he says, look, you can't either. He says, you can't either, unless you abide in me. And so their eyes are beginning to open and they're beginning to understand that there is something about our interconnectedness to Jesus that allows us to abide and allows us to produce fruit. And so he brings both of these together. In verse 5, he reminds them. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Everybody say, much fruit. Notice he doesn't say this, this, this kind of subsistence living level of fruit. There's this mistaken assumption within Christianity that if we have any fruit at all or anything that, that resembles fruit, God looks from heaven and he says, this is just absolutely wonderful. This is fantastic. This is amazing. Oh, this is just so great. This is almost like the, the pecan or pecan perhaps uh, that, that Matt was able to raise. And he's a hapless nitwit when it comes to growing things. And so this is just great. I'm just so excited for you. But look what he says there. He says, whoever, in, in essence, the abiding one in him 
bears much fruit. The description, the depiction of a Christian life is never meager fruit. It is much fruit. So how do you tell a Christian? How do you find out who they are and and, and what their ideal is and what they should be moving toward? They're the ones producing much fruit. Why? Because they're the ones abiding in him. We're never able to produce much fruit because we're, we're, we're just great raw materials or because we're, we're able to just do it by our own willpower. In fact, look what he says. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't give us this picture that apart from me, you can do a little bit. And, and you know, if you save up a little bit over a long time, that's a pretty great thing. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's impossible. All your efforts will be frustrated. And so we recognize he's not talking about just being a good person because we find good people that don't believe in Jesus all the time. In fact, I would dare to say that uh, many of the people who I've met who have been the most terrible to me or to others that I've seen claim the name of Jesus repeatedly. It's like this this blanket of dogma they think shields them from the the view of God. Oh, oh yeah, I I was baptized. So you're a terrible person. Yeah, but it's okay. I got wet one day after I told somebody that that Jesus is the only way, and that just seals me. In fact, I'm probably still a member at First Baptist Bug Tussle. And and you know, if you they don't just let anybody be a member of a church. Oh, really? That's just lunacy. That's just complete and utter madness. And it's just, it really sullies the name of God that we would have this, this, this trivializing understanding of what it is to be a believer and follower of him. Because what he says here is that the abiding one, the one who persists and remains in him, bears much fruit. I mean, the sky's the limit on what God is able to do with us and through us if we find ourselves in submission to him, abiding with his son, and apart from him, we're, we're just a lost cause. So he takes these two pictures, and so on the one we have the one who abides in him and bears much fruit. On the other we have the one, uh, this man or woman who's gone off on their own, and they sought, sought to do it on their own. And he says, you're not going to be able to accomplish anything. You're not going to be able to do anything. So he begins to kind of build on these ideas of the negative. Look at verse 6. He begins to give us a depiction of the negative. He says, anyone who doesn't abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into a fire and burned. Now, I don't think he's pointing at kind of eternal destination. I, I don't think that's what he's communicating here. I think what he's asking us to do is to remember uh, the words of the prophet Ezekiel to the people of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 15. Uh, just listen to this or, or read along with me. He says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood, the vine branch that is among the trees of the forest? And he's anticipating the prophet would say, Well, it, it doesn't. The branches of the vine that come out, they don't surpass any wood. He said, is wood taken from them to make anything? Are they useful? He'd say, well, it's not really. He said, does, a, does somebody take a peg and hang any vessel on it? In fact, can you, can you take it and break it off and nail it under the wall and then hang something on it? He said, no, it's just a vine. It's just worthless. It's not going to be able to do very much good. He says, behold, it's given to, to the fire for fuel. And so in this depiction of Israel's spirituality there in Ezekiel chapter 15, he says, look, you have become worthless. You have no uh, value in you, even though you were meant to be a true and a holy, uh, pure and, and spiritual blessing to those around you. Because you have engaged in faithlessness, Israel, you are worthless. You're worthless, so God sends his son Jesus. 
You're worthless. And so God doesn't just cast you to the side and say, look, I'm just done with you. I'm just not going to have anything to do with you. He appeals to them through the coming of the Son, the true vine. It's this, this mediated relationship with God through the nation of Israel failed, but the mediated relationship through his son Jesus never fails. And so he invites all. He says, look, don't be cast aside. Don't be mistaken as a Christian, but identify yourself with the true vine. Don't sound like and look like and hang out with Christians and think somehow that there's this, this mediated blessing will rub off on you or a blessing by extension and spending time with them. But invest yourself in the true vine. Submit yourself to him. So again, he comes back to it in verse 7. He says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And it sounds like Jesus is entering into a little bit of kind of Santa Claus saying, come up and jump on my lap, and if you do everything I tell you to do, and you really want to be a part of me, then I'm going to give you whatever you want. But look at how that's not absolutely what he's saying. He says, if you abide in me, so if you set it as the intensity of your heart to submit yourself in all things to Jesus, and you say, there is nothing in my life that, that, that I recognize that I can rightly keep from him, although I repeatedly try. My desire is to submit all these things to him, but I recognize my heart is wayward, and so I am trying to abide in you. And he says, my word abides in you. And so in essence, we are being obedient to the mandates. We're being obedient to follow the example of Jesus. And he says, if this is true of you, and so on the one hand, his word abides in us and we abide in him. So if this reality is true, he said, from that place and from that posture, ask me absolutely anything you want and I'll give it to you. Now, this is why he's not Santa Claus. Santa Claus, we try and obscure all the various things we've done. We recognize he can't really look at everybody at one time and, and he can't really uh, know who's naughty and who's nice, but Jesus can. And so we have this understanding that when Jesus looks at us, he is, in some sense, calling us to a deeper relationship with him. He's calling us to abide in him, and he's calling us to live out a life of faithfulness towards him. And from that place, we would never ask for something that would dishonor him. We would never ask for something that would be selfish in our request. We may be tempted, but we would never do that. Because we are submitting our will, submitting our desire to his, and this is how our requests are given to us. And look what he says, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified. And so on the one hand, we recognize that in the midst of submitting ourselves to him and praying to him and asking him to give us things in our life, that God is glorified. He is honored. And so there's something special that happens in the midst of a Christian submitting themselves to prayer. We are praying specifically for those things that God might be honored. We're not praying for those things that we might enjoy selfishly for us and for us alone. And then he continues in other ways to glorify the Father. He says that you might bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The idea of bearing much fruit is radically tied to what it is to find your identity in Christ. He's already told us, you can do nothing apart from me. And so he calls us to bear much fruit and so glorify the Father. He calls us that even in this, in bearing much fruit, we are showing, we are depicting, we are displaying what it means to be a true disciple of God. 
And we can't do this without him. We can't do this without him. So the question becomes, and he's going to answer it in 9 and 10, how do we persist? In the midst of distractions, in the midst of things that would, that would pull our attentions away, how do we persist? How do we remain? And look at what he says. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Recognize this, that God's love for the Son is absolutely perfect and totally eternal. His love for the Son knows no end. They dwelt in perfect harmony and unity from eternity past on to eternity future. In this perfect love, Jesus says, I've taken what I've understood, I've taken how the love I have experienced, and it is this kind of love I lavish upon you. It is this kind of love that I visit upon you. It is this kind of love that I invite you to come in and experience. It is a love that is completely selfless. It is a love that is completely others-focused and centered. And it is love ready and tailored and made for you, for every heart that longs to be made whole. His love waits, his love is pure, and his love calls you in to abide. Notice this. Before he calls us in an outward demonstration and walking out of her faith, he calls us to enjoy his love. He calls us to enjoy his love. Every extension of the gospel never, ever, ever call someone to faithfulness in getting their life straight before enjoying the benefits of God's love. If you were to go out to, and meet somebody and, and you were to say, oh, look, friend, your life is a complete and total mess. Uh, all these various things are wrong with you. And so, look, I've taken them and I've split them in half. Half's always good for you. It's especially good. And today's a really special day. So I'm going to divide them in half once more. And so half of the stuff uh, would have been too much for you, but a quarter of the stuff you can make right and you can remedy. And so here it is. Here's your list. Go out and fix a quarter of the things going on in your life. Come back. I'm going to verify these things are true. You know I've got to keep God safe. And if, if you fix a quarter of these things, and let's just give you today's the 30th. If we give you just a couple of weeks, you come back. Uh, on the 14th or so. And if you have this quarter of things fit straight, you can abide with him and he's going to abide with you. Does that sound like a good deal? Well, they might say, well, I think I could do that. I think a, I, 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 you know, a half was pretty intimidating. My life's pretty messed up, as you've told me a few times. And so thank you for sharing the gospel so convincingly. But a quarter of these things, I think I can set straight. I mean, it's just not stealing and not killing people. And so those things I'm willing to give up. Oh, I'm so glad those are the two you've chosen. But we never do that. We never do that. Or if you do, you need to stop. Like you need to go see Justin and say, Justin, how do you share the gospel with people? He's like, I don't know. I just walk up and Jesus comes out. And you're like, well, yeah, but less of that when we're trying to make it through a line quickly. <laughs> if you ever go somewhere with Justin, just know that's just how it goes. Like, stop having so many conversations with people we don't know. <laughs> like, I go to bed at 10 o'clock, go share the gospel after that. This is wonderfully beautiful thing that we don't ask broken people to fix themselves before coming to faith. And Jesus doesn't ask broken people to keep fixing themselves once they come to know him. He asks them to enjoy his love. He says, you're broken, I'll make you whole. He said, but God, I have a propensity. <laughs> I just kind of always pull towards the ditch and I always break myself again. He says, my child, I love you. I experienced perfect love from the Father from eternity past and I'm ready to extend and lavish that love upon you. Are you ready to experience it?
He said, but I, I fail to abide. He says, you receive my love before you're ever able to abide. You're like, but I'm drifting away. He's my love persists. My call to you persists. I am the good shepherd. I laid down my life. I swing wide open the gate, and I invite you to come in and to experience the perfect love that has existed before all of creation to experience it with me in experiencing that love in the strength of the Holy Spirit and his abiding. That allows you to abide. And start rationalizing and, and struggling and all the various things that we entertain, trying to make our lives right, trying to make our lives make sense, trying to, to, to make our way through the ether of decisions that are before us. These things confuse, but his love does not. These things divide, these things sully, these things confuse, but his love remains. We have received his love. We receive it in the person of Jesus Christ. His love is extended, and his love is beckoning all to come, even the most wretched among us, even those of us who have excused goodness for righteousness, who have pursued excellence instead of pursuing Jesus. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Come on in and abide in my love. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Repeatedly, he tells us that his burden is light. That when we're captivated and we're enveloped by the love of Jesus, we delight in following him. And look at this. He doesn't call us to walk in a way that he's not tread before us. He doesn't call us to navigate the path without setting it for us. He doesn't call us to figure it out on our own and he'll get back with us. He sets the example for us. He says, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love, he has set the example for what it looks like to follow God and to do it well. And he calls us to follow his pattern. Are you abiding today? Are you merely existing? You would say of your life that I surrendered myself to Jesus. I came to know him, but since that moment, I have existed merely with a knowledge of him. You've never abided in the Son. You have failed to tap into the reality of the love that he has for you. Today, he calls you to change the way that you've been living. He's not calling you to morality. He's calling you to abide, to receive his love. If you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, stop existing and start abiding. I mean, if you're in this place today and you would say, I don't understand this, God. I understand that Christians are supposed to be moral people, and that's what I want for my life. I want to be a moral person. I want to be a good person. I'll tell you that you can be a good and a moral person without God. You can keep the commandments of the Bible without God. But you can't have God without Jesus. God calls us to, to him not so that we might enjoy heaven, but so that we might experience and enjoy God. And so today, the invitation for you is God's love for you surpasses, excels, defeats, destroys, completely obliterates any sinfulness, waywardness, or disinterest in your heart, and it beckons you to come. And it's shown to you in the person of Jesus, his son, who perfectly laid down his life for you, surrendering himself, bleeding, uh, his blood poured out, dying on the cross, and then being resurrected by the power of God in three days so that you wouldn't have to pay the penalty or the punishment for your sin. 
Because, friend, he paid that for you. And his love for you abides.